You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's time to take your body care routine to the next level. Introducing Osea's bestseller body care set, the perfect companion for your summer travels. This four-piece kit transforms dry skin to silky, soft, and glowing. It features travel sizes of Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil and Body Butter, clinically proven to improve skin elasticity, along with their anti-aging body balm and salts-of-the-earth body scrub. And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the best seller's body care set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at OCEAMalibu.com code SUMMER. Hello, everyone, and welcome to my first show. Today's guest is, I don't even know what title to give him. He is a writer. He is a director. He is a producer. And I've heard and firsthand experienced the nicest guy in Hollywood, literally. Oh, gosh. <laughs> my buddy, <laughs> Greg Berlanti. Well, that, that's, the, that's the best thing someone like you could actually say. So uh, I'm, I'll, I'll, ta- I'll take that, especially these days. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, someone could make the joke of, look at your competition. It's Hollywood nice. But <laughs> that's the, true. The, the truth of the matter is you are such a thoughtful, sweet person. And I, I don't know, I think it's kind of incredible because you started out early in the business of Hollywood. You started out quick in terms of finding your success and making great strides, yet you've remained such an authentic guy. And so I'm going to ask you the question we ask everyone at the top of the show, and I, I know you're going to answer authentically, which is... How are you? Uh, I'm okay. You know, I mean, I think, I think, uh, you know, in terms of the world right now, it's a, it's an intense and scary and revealing and emotional and um, roller coaster. I think for everyone, and everyone's kind of going through their own independent journey. Um, I've tried to stay focused on uh, the positives in terms of, you know, I have a young family and my husband and I, um, have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And so, you know, obviously I've, I've learned that I'm, I'm not meant to be a preschool teacher, <laughs> just <laughs> confirming, confirming some instincts I had earlier in my life, um, and, and or camp counselor. Right. Uh, although I had been a camp counselor when I was much younger, uh, I've just seemed to have lost all the skill sets that 
you know, one needs to be a good camp counselor. Didn't um, think you'd be revisiting that. Uh, no, I did not. At this point not. in your career. Yeah. Yes. And somehow these two children are more challenging than whatever the 15, seven-year-olds I had at, at Camp Shenorock. <laughs> um, you know, so, uh, you know, I, uh, but, but, you know, we're getting to see them every day and spend a ton of time together. And uh, particularly, obviously, you know, when they're at such a young age to, to be around. So that, that's been something we've been, you know, really focused on and just, uh, you know, uh, you know, taking a lot of walks and, and then, and then the flip side of it is, is in the business of television and film really focused on trying to get everybody back to work right now. And, you know, and, and very hyper aware of the suffering that people in this industry have been facing without work and doing what I can, um, and doing what, um, I can, I can get my friends to do and others to do, to, you know, donate to things like the actors fund and SAG after foundation to get, you know, to keep people afloat during this time, um, knowing that we, we don't really know how much, much longer it will all be extended for. It's certainly not going to be normal anytime soon. Yeah. Um, yeah. and you know, as you know, very well that this business is such a, a community experience and such a family wherever you go. And so, um, I've been sort of just, um, that's where I've, I've probably lost sleep the most is just knowing the number of people that I, you know, have interacted with on a daily basis over the last couple of years and how many of them, um, are just in pain right now. Yeah. 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 You know, the, um, the TV film business, I think when this first happened was thought to be able to come back fairly soon or, or, or certainly sooner than the live theater business. But as the virus has, has proven that it is stronger and knows more than the rest of us, it has hampered, gosh, every, every way of telling stories, not just the live theater experience. So I feel for you, I feel for your staffs and and for your teams and, and, and for your creative family. Um, I I'm curious, is there, um, is there an end in sight in, in your eyes that, that you're optimistic about? I mean, yeah, because I think what I've witnessed also firsthand through the years is just the depth of ingenuity, you know, and um, from every, every department, you know. And so, and when the desire is there, it's just that we are in a business of making the impossible possible, right? And so, so many times with storytelling, again, whether it's theatrical or visual or whatever, there's just so many days that you encounter things that you're like, how, how the hell are we going to do that? You know? <laughs> and, uh, and this is just the biggest, how the hell are we going to do that? <laughs> and, you know, and everyone has to, obviously safety is, you know, uh, the primary goal. And, but it's, you know, as we're finding, as people talk about schools and people talk about every element of this, um, you know, of, of COVID, you know, what, you know, every, every, there's a sliding scale of what individuals even independently sometimes deem safe. And so there's a lot of conversation around that. And we're looking for guidance, obviously, the studios are from the guilds, you know, to tell us what is going to be okay and what we can provide. And we, we shoot a number of shows across different cities, um, different countries, um, and everyone has it differently, you know, and everybody's got advantages and disadvantages uh, to their, either to their community or to their testing capabilities, um, or to what their numbers might be. And those can change on a dime. So I think it's, this is real 
opportunity for this business, um, and, and my hope is that this will happen throughout the fall, to work as one big family and say, okay, you know, it's not, it's not going to be okay enough if just one studio gets back up and going or just a couple of shows from one studio get back up and going or movies. You know, everyone has to be sharing information, you know, about how are you doing this? How can we do this better? Oh, gosh, okay, you guys did that that way. And, and if everybody sort of embraces that learning curve and really, I think, uh, you know, is, is ever, most people I've ever met in this business, you know, are in it for the right reasons. They want to be a part of storytelling. And, and, you know, it's not just about all the other accoutrements that I think a lot of people think come along with it that this is a time where everyone really has to be in this together and uh, you know, and, and there'll be fits and starts, you know? Yeah. And, and so trust is important and patience is important. And um, you know uh, you know, obviously uh, you know, being uh, open is important and, but also being honest about what you don't know or, you know, uh, aren't, you know, totally aware of or what you can't achieve, you know? And so uh, you know, I, the next two months are going to be really critical. Things are, we're, we're starting, we've got our first show that we're going to try and go back with actually in New York. And then that'll be a learning curve. And then, and then Canada is sp- supposed to be thereafter. And then, and then Los Angeles and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we want you back to work because that's a sign that things are moving in the right direction for yes. the country and for the theater industry. But the fans of this podcast want you back to work because you got some musicals up your sleeve. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that the sooner we can see a Little Shop of Horrors movie adaptation Uh, or a Be More uh, Chill adaptation, the happier the Broadway community will be. So if you don't mind, maybe just give us a sneak peek on anything there is to share on those two titles. Absolutely. So, uh, be more chill. Um, you know, the, the creators of that show are working away on the script. So we haven't seen a, a, the full script yet. Um, we originally had purchased that, uh, or Fox purchased it for us and then Fox got gobbled up by Disney. <laughs> so, uh, but it is one of the, the, you know, scripts and pieces of material we have over there that Disney seems, you know, I think rightly, uh, incredibly excited about. And then Little Shop of Horrors has been a passion of mine for literally decades. I um, my first experience with it uh, was, uh, you know, I saw it at the Orpheum when I was a kid with my mom. Um, we went to a number of shows together, and and certainly a fan of your podcast. I'm sure that this will come up, but that'll that this was one of the shows that we um, attended when I was a kid. And then I produced in college at Northwestern. I think one of the first, if not the first, but definitely one of the first college productions of it. It was the early nineties, you know, it had just been on Broadway. Um, and, and it was one of my first productions as a producer. And at the time you had to, to mount a production of it, you had to rent the plant. And there were only like two, two to three plants that went around to regional theaters and the plant had its own lawyer. And the first <laughs> lawyer I negotiated with in the business as a producer was Audrey II's lawyer. <laughs> and I hope you got a killer deal. I, I got an okay deal. Uh, uh, the, uh, the other funny experience I had on that show, which was also random, you know, when you're doing these college productions, I had a young uh, a, a associate producer who was working with me at the time. And, and um, she said, well, what are some ways we can arrange money for this? And I said, well, you know, um, 
we can we go out and we sell ads. So you go out to the town of Northwestern's in Evanston, Illinois, and we just go door to door. And I went and she went. And one day she came in with a stack of checks. <laughs> and it was right when I was pretty certain we weren't going to be able to pull off the production because we just didn't have enough money for the damn plant. And so, uh, and so she came back and she said, no, no, I think I've got it. And I looked at all the checks and all the checks had two things in common. They were all from businesses from New Jersey, which is not in Illinois. <laughs> and the other is they were all signed by her father. <laughs> and, and she said, my dad said for you to cash these quickly. <laughs> so <laughs> the first production I worked on it was funded by uh, you know a somewhat circumspect uh, a financier, and uh, but the plant got there. We did a production; it was a big hit, um, and I just always loved the show. I loved everything about the show, and so it's been something I've been even before sort of musicals were. You know, I'm old enough now that there's times in this business where in the film and TV side where they're like in vogue, not in vogue, in vogue. So they're in vogue again. Um, but they were, when I started uh, out with Warner Brothers on this, it was, you know, a few years ago and they were not in vogue at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, and, and now here we are, COVID delayed us by about a year. We're just negotiating with the actors. So I can't reveal anybody that's, you know, may or may not, people may or may not see on the internet are, are being rumored or whispered to be in it. But, um, you know, our hope is to be in production on that next June in Los Angeles. Um, we, we've that, I guess that's one tidbit I'll give away is that, mm -hmm. that you know, we, we've moved the location of it back to the, um, original, uh, Corman film, oh. um, you know, in the sense of like, it's downtown LA, it's, it is in the same era. It's in the, you know, it's in the early sixties and, um, you know, and so I hope to be shooting it next year. Amazing. Skid Row will be exactly. revealed. Um, huh. I hope you kept your tabs on that woman with dad's uh, signed checks and she's working for you still. <laughs> and if she's she is not, not. But that was, that was, that was, uh, she is, she is not. Um, I have not kept tabs, but I did, I did learn about myself that like I was a true producer in that regard <laughs> that I was like, I cashed those checks right away and the show must go on. <laughs> How, how fast should I cast these checks? <laughs> exactly. <Really fast. laughs> I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> well, though we don't usually ask what was the first college production right. you were you were uh, involved in uh, on my first show. Maybe we'll add it to to future episodes. But but we do ask, as you know, what was the first show you ever saw? Well, okay, so the. Uh, it, I have a slight alteration to my answer because I do have one that's feel because I, again, I'm a huge fan of, of you doing this. So I, I, but I anticipated the question somewhat and, and, but I, I think the, the first one that I remember, I, we saw a bunch of shows. My family would always go to shows as a kid. We lived uh, in Rye, New York about, uh, we moved there when I was about 10. Um, and we would, my mom made it a pretty frequent habit for us to go in. Um, and so we saw a bunch of things like over, over a few years there from when I was like eight to nine to 10, all the ones that were big at the time. But the one that we saw that changed my viewing pattern and really first affected me, um, and I, you'll see why in a second was La Caja Fall. Mm. So it was, uh, I was around 10, 11 years old and my family went on one of these trips and it was my dad, my mom, my sister, me. I was probably just aware that I was different, you know, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I was a closeted gay kid and, and just figuring out, like, uh, I, I don't think I was at a point yet totally where I knew I was gay, but, um, but I knew I had something in common with those men on the stage. And whatever the, I think it's the end of the first number where they sort of take off their drag outfits. Yeah. And you realize, correct, yeah. correct. They rip off their wigs. And my father did not know what the show was about. <laughs> And from that moment on, and if you were doing like a shot, like a camera shot, and you were just panning down my father and seeing his reaction to that, to then my mom, like her watching my dad's reaction, and then my sister reacting to my parents, and then you got to me, and there would just be like a sly smile across my face that like, oh my God, I can't believe my mom has taken us to this. And, and the whole drive, that, that was like a permanent smile. It was like through intermission where my father was like wondering if we should leave wow. to, uh, you know, the drive home back to, back to Rye, um, uh, you know, uh, where, where my father was just sort of complaining, Barbara, you can't just do that to me. <laughs> you, know, like, you have to tell us what these shows are about. I need to vet these things properly before we all go. And, and again, I, I was just, I can remember that drive back and, how horrified my father was. And my mom was like, I think uh, a little bit like get over it It was great show. And, and me knowing it was like so vivid in my mind because it was, you know, um, they were talking about the thing that was like the beginnings of my secret. The other thing it changed, uh, and altered forever was it was no longer family trips to the theater. (laughs) My mom would instead take me individually and so we would go down and one of my favorite things, my mom's no longer with us, but one of my favorite things that she did that was the best was like once every couple of months, like probably every three or four months, she would break me out of school on a Wednesday and take me down to see the matinee shows in part because of cost. Exactly. And, but also because it was like our secret, like we were skipping school to go to the theater Wow. And so that's why that show was also pivotal. And we saw so many shows together and uh, we would go, we would, we would get the stand online for the tickets and then we'd go to lunch somewhere and then we'd go see the show. And, um, you know, it was the mid eighties, um, you know, through the end of the eighties. And those are some of my fondest memories. God, I love that story. Do do you think your mom knew and was putting something out there for you both I, to share? I think she knew by then I had been interested in the arts. You know, I did puppet shows growing up, which is also why I loved obviously little shop. Um, I did uh, like local theater and local storytelling events. And so, um, you know, I was uh, into the art form. So she knew that. And she was always, you know, whether or not she knew when I came out to her years later, she did, she professed, she had no idea. Hmm. And she definitely seemed like she had no idea. Um, you know, but I was her little buddy in that way, you know, and she loved, you know, when we would start, when I started doing a lot of theater, she would actually produce the shows and she would, you know, um, or help raise money for all the shows and do all the tickets and make (laughs) sure every single person she knew in town would come. And that, that continued well into my career in that, you know, every time she just passed away three years ago and every year that we had a new show come out, every single one of her friends would get a card of all the show's dates and the premiere dates and like everything that they had to watch. And, you know, she really was truly, she went from just being a fan of, of storytelling and the event to just being my number one fan forever. And, and uh, you know, was, she, she definitely kept pushing and pushing me in this direction. Wow. Wow. I think I read somewhere that you, you called her your first WME agent. 
<laughs> she was. She was my first agent, but publicist, uh, you know, and, and also critic. You know, yeah. she would definitely, she was like, if something wasn't as good or, you know, um, you know, and, and, or, or if somehow when I was starting to direct as a kid and do things like that, you know, if I was stressed out and, and not behaving in any way, she would reprimand me that way too. She was tough and she was awesome, you know? So, yeah. so I'm really, it's, it's, it was definitely, you know, those, those mag- whenever I talk to people about like those individuals that first brought them to theater or brought them to shows, whether it was an aunt or a friend or, you know, it's such a magical relationship. You know, it really is um, um, like ex- going on that experience. Someone, someone seeing that you have an interest in the arts and, and you know, uh, con- connecting you to it and being a part of that event with you and is such a, I think it's such a special thing for a child, you know? And so I, I hope to be able to, that my kids are, are into that kind of stuff. Oh, absolutely. So you're essentially the pioneer of gay storylines on TV. And I'm just curious, as you created this lane for yourself with the work that you did on Dawson's Creek and Brothers and Sisters and Dirty Sexy Money, did you refer to that first show experience at Lacage, And did that influence your decision to help create the content that you could identify with? I, well, I mean, it, I, I've never, you know, I think I, I've been lucky to be a part of, uh, of a lot of those firsts over the last 20 years. And, and, but I never really sort of set out to, to do that. Each one as they've individually sort of happened has always been you know, show related to that show or, or just, you know, passionate about putting stories out there that reflect, you know, my own experience and, and making sure that that's sort of part of, you know, of the, of those narratives. I I, I think I, I would probably say what I was more aware of when we were doing this kind of stuff was, you know, 19, imagine it being 1983, 84, 85, 86, and being um, a kid that age, um, there was no internet, there was no sense of who was gay or not gay. And Rock Hudson was the first person you heard about, and that was through AIDS. Right. Then there were, you know, just as you're discovering your sexuality, there's an entire generation of men being decimated by the disease. And that was, you know, obviously um, terrifying for a young kid, you know, and was scary for me. But also, again, I, I felt a sense of connection because at least people were then talking about being gay. Yeah. Um, and so, so having no lifeline, there were the, you know, and then there were the more quote unquote, more effeminate guys on TV, Paul Lynn, you hear a lot about in center square and, mm-hmm. you know, and Jim J Bullock on, on uh, too close for comfort, you know? And so you were aware of those certain characters, but um, it was, it wasn't really. And then until I got to college and I started seeing some great art house gay cinema and, and things like that. in in the, you know, early nineties that I started to even really feel then like, okay, wow, this is, feels like it's more my experience. And so I was aware of, of how isolating it can be. And you, you'd like to think that with social media and all these other things, you know, kids are coming out so much younger now, but I think it's still, you know, it is still a very uh, isolating experience initially, or, you know, it can be for many. Um, and so, um, you know, and, and there's still a lot of, um, you know, and there's still a lot of work to be done, uh, in all sorts of communities, sometimes major city centers and sometimes elsewhere, you know, to, 
for young kids, uh, all LGBTQIA kids, you know, to feel, I think, um, both represented, uh, connected, um, you know, and not alone. I, I was very hyper aware of the loneliness I felt mm. during that time. Yeah. And so um, that was, it wasn't like an intention where I set out to sort of correct that with the stories I was telling, but it, but that loneliness informed a lot of the stories I was telling. That's, that's really, that's really beautiful because unplanned or planned, the kids that were watching the shows you created and the stories you brought to us finally didn't feel as lonely either because of what you created in these, in these storylines with the first gay kiss or the first same sex marriage or the first transgendered character. I mean, you did that, Greg. So thank you. Uh, well, I, I thank you and thank, uh, you know, obviously thanks to all the talent that was a part of those things, both, uh, the actors and the, the writers and, and the network executives who sometimes unwittingly and sometimes, uh, very wittingly, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, either tried to, uh, edit or augment or finally embraced by the time we got to, you know, when we were doing Dawson's, it was, everything was a fight around that character, particularly any, and if he was to be sexualized in any way. Um, and then by the time I got to brothers and sisters, which wasn't all that less than eight years later, um, it was the executives were saying, well, no, no, if two characters, if a male, if a guy and a girl would straight characters would kiss here, then, then the gay characters should kiss here too. Mm -hmm. And so it was nice to see that change. You know, I think, I think what's, what's being recognized now is, you know, and, and, it, and because I've, I've actually been fortunate enough to be in the business now a long time is to see this new wave that's been cresting for the last couple of years of a desire for even more authenticity and certainly a desire for more representation, yeah. you know, and that just the white gay kid, you know, growing up in the eighties, which I was, you know, that just that person's experience is not, you know, in any way it's, it's, a, it's a representative of, fr of a fraction of a fraction of the queer, you know, um, experience and, and stories that, that have still yet to be told and, and should be told by fresher voices. And, and so I've kind of moved, if anything, at this point, particularly in television where I've just been doing it a while, I've, I've gotten to move into more of the uncle or, or godfather <laughs> role to those other storytellers, you yeah. know, and that, and, and I kind of embrace it because it's, you know, I want them to have the gumption that I had at that time. Um, and I am a little bit like, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, like Tom Hanks and saving private Ryan, where I'm like a little <laughs> bit like, I've seen it kid, you know, like now, and now it's your turn. I'll help you. I'll support you. I'll tell you what I know and I'll, I'll try and play tackle for you, but it really has to be your time. And, uh, and that's, that's a, it's a new, it's sort of a new, uh, role for me. And, and it's one that I'm excited about. It's the Papa role, which it you've is. finally grown into. I yes, know. exactly. <laughs> I have the gray hairs to, that go with it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. All right. What was the first show you were ever in? Um, the first show that I was ever in that was somewhat, um, uh, that I would consider like the beginning of my theatrical experience was a show called Starstruck, um, which was our stolen version of a chorus line for the, <laughs> Shush. For the Concord theatricals does listen to this it show. Was, <laughs> it was the Rye community theater at the time. Um, I, I had many mentors early on in theater, but two in particular, um, one named Burton Rouser, who, uh, taught in, in New York city and also taught in Rye in the community theater. And then my, the man who became my middle and high school, uh, high school acting teacher and, and all around, uh, mentor, his name was Neil Mendick. And he was, um, but they were both really so, um, pivotal in my entire life and what I wanted to be and what I wanted to go do. <clears throat> but Starstruck was the first one of those sort of, oh, wow, this is more than just, you know, being in a, a fifth or a sixth grade play. But really, you know, mm-hmm. actually, I was in seventh grade. I was the smallest kid in my class, which meant that I was right at the center of the chorus line. <laughs> <laughs> they don't put the smallest kid in the back of the chorus yeah. line. So when you kind of go down in that V-shaped thing, I had to be right at the point at the top of it. Like the, all the girls were behind me. I was sort of right in the center. Um, and, uh, I also, um, I played the part of Richie, which may or may not have been also the character in the show. Um, Mm. uh, you know, it was, it was rye and it was the eighties. So it's in Westchester County. I was, uh, Italian and, uh, uh, was, was considered ethnic in my community (laughs) by by virtue of its demographics. So I would, I would often get like, it was like, if they could have made me, uh, you know, all the sharks. Uh, they would have, you know, in, in West Side Story. Right. <laughs> like, I would, I, and so I played Richie, who I think is is played. Uh, if it's the same character, which I, I honestly can't remember, uh, he was where I sang, "Give me the ball, give me the ball, give me the ball." Yeah. Um. Um. It was played by a black man, in you know, uh, in the original show, um, and that was that was, but it was more my introduction to just what I loved about it was how serious, um, you know, everybody took it. And, and so it was really my introduction also to, wow, I, I, I really felt at home. In fact, I don't think I ever felt as home as I did sort of in that moment until years later when I walked into a TV office of a, a, you know, of a TV show and I was there for about a day or two days and I called my, my parents and I said, wow, I think I'm supposed to do this. Like, I, I really love this. And, and I remember feeling that at the time when I was you know, 12 or 12 or 13 years old. When, when you were playing Shit Richie, did you know <laughs> that you guys were totally ripping off Ed Kleban and Marvin Hamlish's yes. prize winning? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I think we kind of kept waiting to get shut down. Um, 
but it was, we couldn't, you know, uh, Rye was not a poor community. So no. it was like, it, it could have like, it, you know, someone should have come and said something. Maybe I'm naive, but I'm going to venture to say that it wasn't that your drama teacher was ripping off <laughs> Sam French or whoever owned the rights back then. I'm going to say that they were too embarrassed to get the license for kids. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. I, I, and I, yeah. And I believe that that was the case. Um, you know, in terms of like how the, the themes of it were. And it was a little bit of a scandal in the community. You know, there are always those shows where you're like, ooh, how are they going to handle that in the right. town, you know? Um, and, and it was, uh, uh, you know, but it, it was, we were kind of a, there was a group of us. We ended up all doing many, many other shows together over the next five or six years. But that was the first one. And, um, and I, again, I could remember every, you know, every bit of the, of, of the daily sort of ritual. I called it play practice. I don't know. Do kids still call it play practice? I, I like think rehearsal, would, but yeah, back then I know. we called it play practice. We yeah. called it play practice. So yeah. I would go to play practice every day and it was like, wow, you know, like it was like, this is what a lot of people must feel when they're like in a sport that they love or, you know, um, or whatever. And, and just the, you know, again, the beginning of a sense of that family and that community of everyone. And I was a lot more fearless. Uh, I developed stage fright in college, like actual stage fright. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and wasn't really, really realized like, oh, this is not for me. But at the time I was uh, undaunted mm. and really loved, uh, just loved every bit of it. The censors were, will get us if we present a chorus line, but no one will touch us if we do <laughs> chorus truck. <laughs> I can hear it reading. <laughs> can hear it in the meeting. Um, I love that. That is that is beautiful. Um, <laughs> what was your first professional show? And that can be any title from director to producer to usher to crew member. The first time you actually got paid. Yes, to, to this is paid. great. It was my first and my last. <laughs> Please. My first more. and my last uh, as uh, as an actor um, was in the Chicago production of Tony and Tina's wedding. Ah, so, uh, I was in, uh, again, Italian, so that helped me, yeah. but no, they were doing a Chicago production. So for those that don't remember, or I don't know how, how it, if it plays still places, there was, uh, an interactive theatrical experience called Tony and Tina's wedding, where you went to an Italian wedding and, uh, you know, and, and so, you, you know, you ate ravioli and like the, uh, the brothers, the, the groomsmen would come over and pull you into a corner and smoke a fake joint. And, and I was, it was, that was, that was at the same time that I was doing, I was starting to write plays in college and starting to realize, like I mentioned to you, you know, previously that I was starting to like be in theatrical, theatrical plays, like on a stage, like with an audience, I was thinking more about like, well, how did the playwright do this? Or, you know, and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't really in the moment, as they would say, as I would expect an actor to, to be, um, or a good actor to be. And then, uh, but I was, I did get at the last minute, a friend of mine said, they're auditioning for this show downtown above second city, uh, called Tony and Tina's wedding. And I said, Oh, I heard that's a lot of fun in New York. And I went down and they were, you know, they were like, okay, well, we're going to do an improv and there was just a group of guys and, and I started to, uh, just, you know, I don't know, act like I had acted around. I had, I, I, it was, I was Irish Italian. So I had a, but I did have an Italian family that I grew up with and I had aunts, uncles and aunts and everybody would meet on Sunday and have, you know, a meal for five hours. And <laughs> it wasn't, it was a very, I had a very 
authentic Italian, um, especially in that era, um, childhood. And so very familiar with like things that they would say and expressions. And, you know, I had a great grandmother who lived well into her 90s, who I was very close with, and a grandmother who lived also well into her 90s that I was very close with. And so, um, yeah, I got I got the part of Johnny Nunzio. And, <laughs> and, and my mom brought all of her friends out to see me. Um, they all came out from, from, you know, the East coast, um, for a big, uh, and my cousins came and my sister came and everyone, it was a big group of ladies who all came. It was also right around when I was really, really realizing I was getting, like, I knew it at this point, I was just didn't know how I was gonna, you know, but I was still deeply in the closet. Wow. Um, how does Johnny and- Nunzio come out to Ma? Exactly. So you can only <laughs> imagine. And, uh, you know, and, and, but it was my first experience also going to, you know, afterwards there was a bar nearby and the actors would go gather in the bar and, and they're just, and I started, this was the other thing that was happening was I realized I didn't have the fortitude to give up that much control, Mm. you know, that I think one has to do, um, you know, which is an element of the job, uh, that there's so many things about being an actor that I just admire so much. And because I had so much proximity to it for so many years, I really know how gifted one has to be to be able to emote in front of other people, to, to be able to inhabit a role, to, you know, but also to just live and not know where your next you know, story that you'll be a part of will come from. And I really realized like that was not for me. Yeah. <laughs> that was, I was, uh, and so I, when I left that show, by the time I left that show, I had gotten a job uh, working at the Royal George Theater in Chicago, and we were working on a couple of national tours that were opening up for the first time. This was Mm -hmm. 1994 now, um, and it was Angels in America and Tommy. And so those were the first shows that I worked on as an assistant to the producer, the national tour of Angels and the the first national tour of Angels and the the first national tour of, of Tommy. Wow, and, Smokey, and what and what became Smokey Joe's Cafe was the other one, which wasn't called that at the time. I forget what it was called. Yeah, that's right. It 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 found its name over time. Um, that's incredible because those those are monumental, pivotal shows. Yes, that began their road life, which of course was a a big first step uh, for the Midwest. And you were there. God, that must have taught you a lot. Yeah. And, and again, imagine working on Angels in America and being a closeted yeah. <laughs> 21-year-old. Um, and so uh, it wasn't until I moved to Los Angeles uh, a few years later that I, that I finally you know, had, the, had the courage to come out of the closet because, and this is a little nice little Broadway shout out, my, my fraternity brother from college and pledge father was a man named Jason Moore. Ah, <laughs> and so, it's a talented so, rat house. <laughs> And so Jason, um, really like at some point after being out here for a year was like, you know, um, and again, for, I, I'm, I'm quite certain that most people listening do, do know who Jason is cause he's such a legend, but, uh, director you know, of Avenue Q, Avenue Q. Yeah. exactly. Their show. Uh, exactly. So, uh, and so he, um, brought me to like my first like dinner with a group of gay guys and turned to me right before the dinner and said, you know, um, I think you're gay. I'm gay. <laughs> and like, you're going to this dinner and uh, you're going to have a good time. <laughs> and so that was, uh, that was about a year and a half, two years after, um, you know, living in Chicago and moving to LA. And, and then everything sort of unfurled from there. I was working very soon after as a, as a TV writer. Sometimes we just need mentors to tell us who we are. 
I could still use those. Yeah. I think that they're they're such a it's it you know um, it's such a unique and special relationship, and and um, I wouldn't you know have any my life would not look anything like it does without the individuals that you know saw something in me either personally or professionally before I saw it in myself. Absolutely. So, but before we move on to our fourth question, Tony and Tina's like accurate good uh you know true oh. italian life oh my god it was a blast and okay. i and i loved everyone involved with it they're still from time to time will write me via facebook some of them and some and what was great about the show was there were a lot of people who were just really italian that weren't performers <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know uh yeah definitely there was there was it was and and you didn't know what was going to happen every night right you know, right. you had the, you had the sort of beats you had to hit as you went through, but the interaction with the audience, you know, it was right at a time where I was starting to really, as I mentioned, you know, really realize I w- I wanted to be a writer, or that that seemed to be my first love, yeah. and and I, you know, it was that live interaction with with uh, the audience just taught me a lot at that time about audiences, yeah, and about you know uh, what the and which is I'm still so cognizant of about you know the experience that they're that they're having. Yeah. That's everything, you know, awards are nice. Critical reviews are great, but people need to come and say to their friends, you need to come. That's all that matters. Correct. And it, that, and then you, you kind of like those great shows as you're asking here, you know, they're the things we mark our lives by and, and the, the key to, to implanting yourself in someone's sort of psyche and life experience is that, that emotional connection that they have to the characters, to the story. Um, and that's, that's the, that's also the, I think for me, the most rewarding part of the actual storytelling, which is moving people in in some way. Yeah. I love it when people say how immersive theater is, is very new. And I say, nah, Tony and Tina's wedding was actually the first immersive theater experience. And that shit's been around for decades. Oh yes. Decades and decades now. Thank you. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Decades and decades and decades. Um, If you could be in any show, anywhere, at any time, what would it be? I I, I was, when I was younger, I was in Guys and Dolls. I've got a couple, but I, I, why don't you help me pick? Okay. okay. You you help me me help. Let me help. I think, and again, not, not a, uh, so guys and dolls, Nathan Detroit, guys and dolls. Like if I was still, if I could still, uh, you're too I wasn't, nice. You're too nice. Uh, <laughs> Bad casting. Next. <laughs> but I, I just, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was that, that show. And, and, and it's just like one of the, it's like a perfect show, you know? Um, and, and so, uh, but I would say the one that always, and it, this is tied up in like my love of politics as well. Um, which would be Arthur and Camelot. And, and I, and I definitely not a, you know, I, I, there's just something about that character that was always been, and that version of him, even down to hearing about Jackie O sitting there late at night, listening, you know, watching JFK. She tells that story. That's how it got the name, you know, Camelot, Mm. uh, obviously that era. Um, It was also, uh, the show, I believe it was the last show that Moss Hart was working on as a director when he mm. passed away. And I've always had this bizarre connection and obsession with Moss Hart. I actually, the, the play that I wrote 
that got me to Los Angeles was an adaptation of Act One, his book Act One. Yeah, of course. And uh, I was not, I also wrote it without the, I wrote it as my senior thesis. There were a few stagings of it, but reading, stage readings of it. Always uh, uh, well received. My my college professor that worked with me on it was a man named Frank Galati, uh, big big director out of Chicago. He had, um, uh, um, just to sort of back up, um, I had seen with my mom his production of Grapes of Wrath, and I had kept in my pocket the ticket from that show. I still have it, actually. My, and my, I used to keep it in my wallet, but I, now I keep it in a box somewhere. Hmm. Um, and because it was a show in, co- in high school, I think I was 18 when I saw it, that made me be like, oh, I want to move people the way that this show moved me. And then I went to Northwestern and found out he was actually a professor there. And he... Uh, and, and I waited till senior year to talk to him. I was too scared to even talk to him. And senior year, I spoke with him and I said, you know, and he's like, let's take a walk. And we were taking a walk around campus or wherever. And, and I, I, I took the ticket out of my wallet and I showed it to him. I was like, this show made me want to be a writer. He said, well, why don't you work on a, you know, why don't we work on a script together? And, and you could do it as a, you know, a, a, a senior thesis over a course of, you know, a few quarters. And, and so he said, what's your favorite book about the theater or your favorite book? And I said, act one. And he said, that's, that's uh, my favorite book. Oh, wow. And so I worked on this and I wrote it. He had me write it one way. And then he had me write it as a, as first as like a chamber piece. And then I wrote it as a straight play. And then he made me merge the two of them together. It was like a really rewarding writing experience. And that it got a few stage readings in Chicago. And then someone read it in California and said, we want to try and put on a production of it. And that was why I moved to, to L.A. I, I think I was probably using that as my excuse, uh, yeah. but I went out here and his family still had the rights and they ended up not giving the the production company the rights. Wow. And so we never mounted it. It was obviously done successfully a few years ago. There was a, a version of it finally, finally done, but it was not the one that I had written. Yeah. And, did you uh, see that one? The Lincoln Center? I did not. I didn't get to see it. I wanted to see it. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure why I couldn't make it back for it yeah. at the time, but it obviously it was you know, it is, uh, it's one of those books where I feel like it, it maybe is uh, you know, starting to get a little bit lost to time and every young person in the theater should read it. Yeah. And so, so I was obsessed with act one, obsessed with Moss Hart and, and then, uh, you know, and then came out here. And, and so that brings us all the way back to, to Camelot and to, <laughs> uh, uh, Richard Burton's performance in it, which I just think is just, I don't know. I just think it's, 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 there's, there has so many, whether it has a fantasy element and that's sort of important, the dynamic, the love triangle, which so often we, we actually use that love triangle very often and on the shows and talk about it, whether obviously you'll see it all over teen dramas when you have, uh, but on Dawson's Creek, that was the first thing that I, when I took over Dawson's Creek, um, you know, uh, the, the show was sort of dwindling in the ratings and we were looking for a story engine. And I said, well, what if, Casey and Joey instead, you know, mm. uh, and it was sort of like Camelot Wow! and it sort of went from there. And so, um, I've always had, I, again, not a perfect show, but I always had an affinity for it and, uh, and an affinity for that, for that character. I choose Camelot for you. Okay, good. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, I like to say how there's like five, five stories that every story is yes. right. It's Hamlet. It's, uh, Romeo and Juliet. Yes. It's, uh, you know, um, King Lear, um, yep. but it's also Camelot. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> You're yeah. I mean, there, right. it's, it's, it's one of the original love triangles. You're you know? absolutely right. Camelot is in 
so many contemporary stories. Yes. I love Whether that. or not people know that they're ripping it off, they are. They are completely. Oh, that's <laughs> amazing. Um, so you've listened to the show, which thank you makes you my friend. But um, <laughs> so you know that there is a surprise uh, closing uh, segment that we don't tell our guests about ahead of time. But yes. we're changing up our lightning round to a new lightning round, and you are the first to okay, good. to suffer through it. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to see how it goes. Same, same rules apply. We put 30 okay. seconds on the clock. Um, I ask a question. Um, you give me um, your first guess instinctual answer. Uh, but this time, what I say to you is actually a lyric from a classic musical. Oh, gosh. And you tell me the name of it. Okay. Um, and if you're wrong, that's fine. Is there just one question per 30 seconds? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try and get in as many as we can. Oh, God. <laughs> We're going to see how you do. It's okay. It's okay. L- listen, first, you're the first. Okay. If this, is, okay. this is tragic. We're not even, we're deleting it. <laughs> we're editing <Okay. laughs> it out. <laughs> so so no, no sweat. All right. We've got 30 seconds on the clock and go. A dream that will need all the love you can give every day of your life for as long as you live. Uh, Man Man from La Mancha? Close. Sound of music. Ah, okay. Day after day, one life. Now it begins. Now we start. One hand, one heart. West Side Story. Brilliant. The more he bleeds, the more he lives. He never forgets and he never forgives. Bleeds was the key word. Oh, I don't know. Sondheim? Very close. Ah, I don't know. Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Oh, yeah, that's what I said. So I just, I just meant Sondheim, like a Sondheim musical. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> the answer to all of life's questions are actually in Sondheim. They really. are. They are. That's true. Literally. Speaking of, anything you do, let it come from you, then it ah, will be me. Also, yes, uh, Sunday in the Park. Brilliant. Well, someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for myself? Starting now, it's going to be my turn. Uh, Rose, sing out, Louise. Gypsy. Rose's turn. Uh, gypsy. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You did great. What are you talking oh, about? Wow. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we had a lot of Sondheim in there, which doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, very helpful. <laughs> I'm going to add Camelot next time. That's right. That's right. He's the lyricist for Gypsy. You're right. So those are the three. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. You were great. You, you were great. You are great. Um, You're great. I'm, I'm so thrilled we had this time together and, you know, it was just really nice to hear about your humble beginnings because am I correct that you had some sort of record amount of shows on television last season? Our company does our company. There's a lot of people who who are responsible for that number. That's fine. But but I think that number is 18. Am I right? We, we did. It will fluctuate. There'll be years (laughs) that, uh, you know, this is a, a business of musical chairs and there's plenty of years where, Nobody get you don't get a chair and and uh, we've we've had a, a good last couple of years but again uh, it's all because of the the showrunners we work with and my partner who you know Sarah Schechter who's a force to be reckoned with um, and you know and so I I, I owe a lot of people um, you know a, a debt of gratitude about all that I love that well thank you for that generosity I know they feel the same about you and thank you for the stories you've told 
the story you told today and the stories you will continue to tell and inspire me and everyone with. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Eva. I loved it. What we are, and what we are, is an illusion. We love how it feels, putting on heels, causing confusion. We face life, though it sometimes... My first show is produced by Josh Altman, MEP, Dory Berenstein, and Alan Seals, and is part of the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode was edited by Derek Gunther. Special thanks to Leslie Papa and Whitney Holden-Gore at Vivacity Media Group. For more info about the podcast, visit bpn.fm backslash myfirstshow. Follow me on Instagram at Eva R. Price. Half real and half fluff, you'll find it tough guessing our gender. So just, if we please you, that's the way to show us just... Cause you'll love us once you get to know us Look under our glitz, muscles and tits Proving we are what we Fortune to the Pharaohs, the riches of Rangoon, the Babylon of Babylon, 
cannot pry loose the secret of her fatal charm. Thank you, Phaedra. And now, on with the extravaganza. It's Leslie Udom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.